0: I want to interrupt this episode for just a minute to tell you how easy it was for me to start recording my podcast. If you're in business, you know how important it is to have one tool to perform all of your work. That is what I love about Anchor. Let me explain. It's free. It's a way that you can create and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And also, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. many different platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. With Anchor, you can even make money from your podcast. It is everything you need to make podcasts all in one place. Download the free Anchor app now or go to anchor.fm and get started today. Welcome to another podcast of War and PTSD. The other day I had another epiphany about how and why my behavior was negatively impacted by my PTSD. In previous episodes, I have told you that whenever I thought one or more of my supervisors were wrong or the solution to a problem that we were discussing was different than mine, I had a sudden urge to correct them. Once I had told them my solution, they usually dismissed it because it wasn't what they were looking for. But not being one to let it go, I promoted my solution constantly and talked about it to whoever would listen to me. This is the definition of disrespect for authority. Even if my superiors would listen to my solution, I did not want it to be watered down, nor did I want to engage in negotiations to look for different options that maybe achieve the same result. My way was the right way and I would not budge. In my mind, it was my way or the highway and that's all there was to it. I would do whatever it took to get my solution accepted by the group. My do or die attitude always, however, caused discord and chaos among my coworkers. A few days ago when I was discussing my PTSD with a friend, I had another epiphany. I discovered that the reason I would not give any credence to a different solution to a problem other than the one that I had come up with was because as soon as the discussion to solve the problem started, my brain would go into the fight or flight section of my brain, which is called the amygdala. Now, now that my brain was functioning from the amygdala in the fight or flight mode, I was ready to fight for my solution and win the battle. I just realized that the reason my brain did that was because the thought of becoming engaged in debate triggered the memory of the firefight in my brain. Evidently, remembering that firefight is etched permanently into the forefront of my brain and it doesn't take much for my brain to go back there. Once my brain is triggered by that memory, I immediately become hostile and assertive. Even if I was in a good mood the, a minute before that discussion started, my personality changed on a dime. In a sense, I had two dominant personalities. One that was easygoing and personable and the other was hostile and assertive. My brain could easily switch between the two personalities. I didn't have to consciously do anything. My brain did that on autopilot. So, why did my brain want to make the switch? This is what I figured out. The number one reason was for me to get a similar adrenaline rush to the one that I had gotten during the firefight in Vietnam. The adrenaline rush that I had gotten during that firefight felt so powerful that I was always looking for ways to recreate it. As I mentioned before, if the adrenaline rush that I got in the firefight in Vietnam was on a 10, on a scale of one being the lowest, 10 being the highest, if it was on a 10, these verbal battles that I would engage in would rate about a five on that scale. Now, in the last 50 years, I have never gotten close to the 10 on the adrenaline rush scale. None of my experiences could uh, get that much adrenaline rushing through my body. So let me give you some examples of similar situations where an adrenaline rush would reach a level of uh, between five and 10, higher than what I have experienced. In track, they call it the runner's high. After you run for several miles, the adrenaline starts pumping and the runner gets a sense of euphoria that's what makes them feel great. A boxer who is hurt in the fifth round, but keeps fighting until the 10th round goes into the fight or flight part of his brain. Once that happens, the adrenaline rush he gets keeps him fighting, and it also keeps him from feeling very much pain. Another example is a surfer who tackles 60-foot waves. He or she gets the same rush. The football player who was injured in the second quarter and plays the rest of the game, has the same adrenaline rush. All of these activities can cause the brain in the amygdala to go into the fight or flight mode. But most people go back to their normal state of mind after the game or the fight or the run is over. In my case, the firefight was so extreme that my brain locked me into the fight or flight mode for the last 50 years. As I mentioned before, I didn't even know my brain had done that. Everything I was doing in my life, even the destructive and the chaotic things felt normal to me. Even when people told me that I was out of line in a discussion and needed to get and needed to back out of the discussion for example, I didn't get it. I was there to win, not to withdraw. Also, when you are in the fight or flight mode, there is no logical way that you are going to accomplish your goal. Still, you are going to continue the fight because winning at all costs is all that matters. Now, this is not logical, but it is what your brain in the fight or flight mode is telling you. I played basketball until I was 60 years old and had my uh, I quit when I had my first heart attack beating up guys in the basketball court and winning arguments were the best activities for me to get my adrenaline pumping up to that uh, number five level on a scale of one to 10. But also, as I've said before, the adrenaline rush I felt in Vietnam was a 10 on a scale of one to 10 and all these activities didn't raise my adrenaline past level five. Even though I constantly tried to get it up to level five it wouldn't i couldn't get past that on the adrenaline scale okay now the number two reason that my brain wanted to make a switch to the fight or flight mode was my desire my desire to maintain control of myself and the people around me the reason control is so important to my brain not to me but to my brain was because I had lost control of myself and my environment during the firefight in Vietnam. At that time, I thought I was going to die. As I've stated previously, I froze at the moment that I decided to join the battles that was going on all around me. At that time, I was more scared than I had ever been in my life. This extreme fear caused my brain activity to switch from the normal activity part of the brain, which is called the cere- uh, cere- cerebrum, to the fight or flight part of our brain, which is called the amygdala. The amygdala, or fight or flight part of the brain, has been controlling my life ever since that moment. Now, let's go to a website. In the Healthline website, there's an article called Fight, Flight, Freeze, what this response means. This article explains how the fight and flight mode works in the brain. Quote, the fight, flight, freeze response is your body's natural reaction to danger. It's a type of stress response that helps you react to perceived threats, like an oncoming car or a growling dog. The response instantly causes hormonal and physiological changes. These changes allow you to act quickly so that you can protect yourself. Specifically, fight or flight is an active defense response where you fight or flee. Your rate, uh, when you do that, when you go into the fight or flight, your heart rate gets faster, which increases oxygen flow to your major muscles. Your pain perception drops, and your hearing sharpens. These changes help you act appropriately and rapidly to the danger to the dangerous situation you are faced with. Freezing is fight or flight on hold, where you further prepare to protect yourself. It's called it's also called the reactive immobility or attentive immobility. It causes you to stay completely still and get ready for your next move. That's what happened to me in the firefight when I froze. My brain went into the reactive immobility section. Now, continuing on, fight, flight, freeze is not a conscious decision. It's an automatic reaction, so you can't control it, unquote. Now, this is what happened to me during the firefight. I was so scared that my body literally froze for a few seconds. Over the years, as I thought about how I froze and was unable to move, I couldn't figure out why just being scared would cause my body to freeze like that. Now, I know exactly what happened. It was the automatic defense mechanism in the fight, flight, freeze part of my brain that caused that to happen. It was automatic. I had no control over it. In fact, until now, 49 years later, I had no idea that it had had happened at all. As the article says, quote, the fight, flight, freeze response of your body's natural is the fight, flight, freeze response is your body's, body's natural reaction to danger. It is a type of stress response that helps you react to perceived threats. Fight, flight, freeze isn't a conscious decision. It's an automatic reaction. Therefore, you can't control it. Freezing is fight or flight on hold where you are prepared to protect yourself, unquote. That is what my brain did to my body without my permission. It was an automatic response in order to protect me from the bullets flying all around me. I have often thought that I froze in that firefight because of cowardness. I never thought of myself as a coward, but that was my logical conclusion. Before going to Vietnam to fight, I was not trained for that type of combat. I had fired a gun more times hunting birds and deer as a teenager than I did on the gun range in Navy boot camp. Now I understand that I had no control over my body or my brain during that firefight. It was my brain's way of protecting me. It had nothing to do with my personality or attitudes. Okay, now back to the article. Quote, during the fight, flight, freeze response, many physiological changes occur. The reaction begins with your amygdala. The part of your brain and the amygdala is a part of your brain responsible for perceived fear. The amygdala responds by sending signals to the hypothalamus, which stimulates the automatic nervous system. The automatic nervous system consists of sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. The sympathetic nervous system drives the fight or flight response, while the parasympathetic nervous system drives the freezing part. How you react depends on which system dominates the response at the time. Now, let me explain that just for a minute, because it took me a while to figure it out. You've got the three parts of your brain, the uh, uh, amygdala, the hypothalamus, uh, and the cerebrum. When your uh, cerebrum is in a state of, of uh, f- uh, fear, then it goes, it switches from the cerebrum to the amygdala. Now, the amygdala responds by sending signals to the hypothalamus. And your hypothalamus stimulates the automatic nervous system. Now, in the automatic nervous system, you have the synthetic and the parasynthetic. The synthetic is the fight or fright. So fight or flight. So when you go from the cerebrum to the amygdala, you're in the fight or flight response. But if the parasynthetic nervous system activates, which there's more fear in that, then that drives the freezing. That's how you respond to a fear. That's how you respond to a dangerous situation, traumatic situation. You either fight or flight, either fight or flee, or you freeze until you can figure out whether or not you want to fight or flight. Okay, now back to the article. Quote, in general, when your automatic nervous system is stimulated, your body releases adrenaline or cortisol, the stress hormones. These hormones are released very quickly, which can affect your body's function. Okay, in the article, this is how it affects your body's function. Your heartbeat, your heart beats faster to bring oxygen to your major muscles. During freezing, your heart rate might increase or decrease. Your breathing speeds up to deliver more oxygen to your blood. In the freeze response, you might hold your breath or restrict your breathing. Your peripheral vision increases. That's so you can notice your surroundings. Your pupils dilate and let in more light, which helps you see better. Your ears, your ears pick up and your hearing becomes sharper. Your blood thickens, which increases clotting factors. That's in case you get hurt, your blood's going to clot. This prepares your body for injury. Your skin might produce more sweat or get cold. As blood flow increases to your major muscles, your hands and feet might get cold. Fight or flight temporarily reduces your perception of pain. That's why boxers, football players, surfers, that's why the um, examples I mentioned, that's why they don't feel any pain in their uh, traumatic experience of whatever they have to do, because the fight or flight temporarily reduces their pain or their perception of the pain. Now back to the article, since specific psychological or physiological reactions depend on how you usually respond to stress, you might also shift from flight or flight and freezing. So you go back and forth between the fight or flight and the freezing mode if it's uh, traumatic enough. So usually your body will return to its natural state after 20 to 30 minutes. That's what usually happens in football games and boxing, surfing. You go into the fight or flight or freezing stage. You get out of that. Now you're back to your normal cerebrum, not you're out of the amygdala. While the fight, flight, freeze response causes physiological reactions, it also triggers triggers psychological fear. Oh, it is also triggered by psychological fear. So your body experiences the physiological reactions, but is triggered by the psychological or perceived fear. Article says the fear is conditioned, which means it's associated with a situation or thing with negative experiences. The psychological response is initiated when you are first exposed to the situation and the situation develops over time, unquote. Now, the fear that I felt in the firefight was the beginning of a lifetime of fear for me. Not only did I freeze as a result of the firefight, but my brain got locked in the amygdala part of my brain for the rest of my life in every situation where i was afraid of losing something like an argument or my job my brain automatically went into the fight or flight mode i had no control over it it controlled me and i didn't even know that my brain was doing that so i couldn't do anything to fix it so when people said hey you're all screwed up i said no i'm not i'm normal this is what i do And I would just dismiss people by telling them that they didn't understand my situation. Well, not only did they not understand my situation, I didn't understand my situation. That was the problem. Now, back to the article again. Quote, the thing that you're scared of uh, is called a perceived threat or something you consider to be dangerous. Perceived threats are different for each person. That's why in Vietnam, some of the guys went through the same firefight I did, and they weren't afraid. They didn't freeze because they were mentally prepared to handle it. I was not mentally prepared to handle that firefight where bullets were flying all around me and I could have got killed. I was not prepared for that experience. That's why my body went into the fight or flight freeze mode, whereas somebody else didn't. Then the article says, um, okay, uh, when you're perceived, when you're faced with a perceived threat, your brain thinks you're in danger. That's because it already considers the situation to be life-threatening. As a result, your body automatically reacts with the fight, flight, freeze response to keep you safe. After a traumatic event, you may develop an exaggerated stress response. That's what happened to me. I developed an exaggerated stress response. It involves a recurrent pattern of reaction related, of reactions related to the initial event. Now, that's my situation. My brain got locked in the amygdala, in the fight, flight, freeze. And every situation that was like that, like I said, losing a job, getting fired, um, playing basketball, argument, all those, my brain immediately went into the fight or flight freeze. It's like it slid into it very calmly. And all of a sudden, I was an assertive, aggressive, sometimes hostile person, not my normal, relatively likable self. Okay, now the article says, the exaggerated stress response is more likely if you have a history of post-traumatic Distress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder was the first one listed, but there's others, okay, physical or sexual assaults, accidents, experiencing natural disasters, childhood traumas, or stressful life conditions. All of these things will cause the same fight, flight, freeze reactions that it did in my body that caused the post-traumatic stress disorder. Article says in this case, your brain reacts to related triggers to prepare you for future traumatic situations. The result is an overactive response. Here's an example. If you've experienced trauma from a car accident, the sound of a horn will remind you of that event. You might have a stress response when you hear a car honking. Okay, unquote. Now according to the article, when you're faced with a perceived threat, your brain thinks you're in danger. That was my problem. That has been my problem since the firefight. My brain's definition of a perceived threat is anyone verbally opposing me anyone on the basketball court anyone in my job who tells me I'm not doing a good job and they're going to fire me all those trigger. Are all those to me are a perceived threat. Now I don't have any physical enemies like I did in Vietnam, but I encounter a lot of people who disagree with me. That is people who are opposing me and trying to convince me that I'm wrong. My brain thinks those people are the same as those uh, as the enemy that opposed me physically. In Vietnam, although they're not causing me physical harm, even threatening physical harm. My brain still thinks. It's a perceived threat, and it reacts the same way it did in Vietnam by slipping back into the fight, flight, freeze mode. Now, when somebody tells me I'm wrong or won't go along with what I'm proposing to do, my hypersensitive brain immediately goes to the default mode of fight or flight. As soon as that happens, and I fear the fear of losing the battle, the adrenaline starts pumping. Now, I am ready for a verbal fight. This is the adrenaline rush I talked about before that I'm looking for. And that happens automatically. As soon as I go into the fight or flight, adrenaline pumps through my body to protect me or to prepare me for either fighting or fleeing. Okay, now for the good part. For some reason, a couple years ago, my brain finally got the message that I do not have to fight with everyone that disagrees with me. It's kind of like this. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, in her 50s who had been married and divorced four times. She told me that her mother had told her to be careful of who she dates because you marry the people you date. Then she said to me, but she didn't tell me to marry everyone I dated. Same with me. My brain says, some people are a perceived threat when they start arguing with you and get hostile. My brain thought every person that disagreed with me was a perceived threat. Now, I don't know why or how my brain decided to unlock the fight or flight section of the amygdala. So I can't help you with that. But once that happened, I lost my desire to engage in verbal battles with everyone that disagreed with me. In a sense, I became normal again. But there was still a problem the habit of debating with everyone that opposed me was still there so even though i no longer saw the person telling me that i was wrong as a perceived threat i still have the desire to debate them that is that built-in habit that i had for decades was very hard to change. But over time, I have successfully adopted a new habit of listening to those who oppose me and I'm trying to understand why they believe the way they do and see if I can't agree with them. So once I'm able to see the other person's point of view, I can give credence to that point of view and I can try to negotiate a solution that works for both of us. Of course, this has taken all the fun out of debating those who I think are wrong, but it has certainly improved my personal relationships, which... I'll take any day over debating with somebody. Now, since starting this podcast, I've been talking to other veterans on Facebook about PTSD. I saw a post that really put my situation in perspective. It said, we can't become what we want to be by remaining where we are. Since 1998, when I was shown that I really did have PTSD, I have been trying to understand what symptoms I have and how to decrease their the dysfunction of those symptoms in my life. I am amazed at how much I've learned about myself and my PTSD during the last 23 years, and especially while recording these podcasts. As I write down uh, all the things that I remember about my PTSD and about all the dysfunctions of my life. Uh, now that my brain is in the normal mode in the suburbium, not in the amygdala. Now I can see how I was wrong and what I did, how the reason I got fired was not their fault. It was my fault. How the relationships I destroyed weren't their fault. They were my fault. Now I can see all of those things working uh, that were working against me. Now I can correct them, apologize to those people who are still around of uh, what I did, how I did it, realizing I was wrong. So now there is one major problem or one major in my PTSD that I thought was just a part of my personality that now I realize was a brain function, not a personality trait. That is my lack of emotions. that's a very lengthy topic so i'm going to end this episode here and i'll talk about how my lack of emotions hurt me over my lifetime uh still is to a certain extent in the next episode episode so see you then